0: Thank you very much. Very appreciative of that from David and Madeline. And uh, also we all want to congratulate them on their engagement. Very, very thankful for that. Looking forward to a wedding, I think this fall in October. And uh, David will be here at least one more year in schooling and will continue to have their ministry at least that long. Thankful, very thankful for that. Well, if the men would go ahead and bring our PowerPoint up for tonight, would like to give another installment of our reading together in the Pilgrim's Progress. I don't know how many of you are able to do this, or how many of you are... Uh, perhaps uh, even way ahead of where we are in this. Some of you have told me that you've already finished. Certainly understand that. It's an exciting story, and when you get going in it, it's a little hard to stop. I want to uh, just show you tonight something that was sent to me this week. (laughs) I thought that was quite good. Anybody know what that is? In Pilgrim's Progress? That's palace beautiful. Yeah. And that's something that uh, David and Sarah Rogers' children did. And they sent me those pictures. I thought that was really clever. And a wonderful way of having the children involved in things. Thank you so much to the Rogers for sending that to us. This is a... uh, the opening of a 1727 edition. Of course, the Bunyan published first edition in 1678. I guess you can't see the words. I was hoping that we could see the words on the left-hand side of the page there. I can't even see them from this distance. I think I can see them here. But uh, on the left hand, you have evangelists saying, he that overcometh Will not be hurt of the second death. Those are words from our Lord's letter to the church at Smyrna. You have a record of it in Revelation chapter 2. But to him will be given the crown of life. I thought uh, that was very appropriate for us tonight as we think of not only our next installment here that we'll be discussing right now, but also even our sermon topic for tonight and what we're doing in our series here. Um, To him that overcometh, he will not be hurt of the second death. Just keep that in mind. The part of the reading that we did this week that I want to call our attention tonight is the part that is portrayed like this. Or in another edition, it's portrayed like that. Another children's edition from, I think, the early 20th century or late 19th century, portrayed like that. Or like that. And here's something off of a modern animated video for children. I've not seen this, but I plucked that out of the midst of it. All of those are artist conceptions of what in the story? Of Vanity Fair. And Bunyan's description of the pilgrims going through that, Christian and faithful, what they encountered there, is just really, you know, I'm not aware of anything really in human literature that surpasses it. Uh, even though it's pretty brief in its scope of description. It's just really a remarkable, remarkable section there. And I want to turn our attention to that tonight and try to answer four questions as we go along with that. And the first is what Bunyan states, what he explains was the origin of this fair. What he does with this is say that Actually, it goes all the way back in his day, about 5,000 years is the way he puts that. And he says that its origin was that Beelzebub, Apollon, and Legion with their companions, perceiving by the path that the pilgrims made, that their way to the city lay through this town of vanity they contrived to set Up there a fair. And of course what Bunyan is capturing here is the whole theology that is recorded for us in the third chapter of Genesis as to what happened to the creation after the fall. And then Romans 8 explanation of that that the whole creation was delivered over to vanity to vexation, to frustration. And so the Spirit of God tells us in Romans 8 something that we just have to accept by faith, but to the ear of God, it all groans and travails together. That is God's, that that is His revelation as to what it is out there the best of his creation groaning and travailing in pain together is the way Romans 8 speaks of this vanity. And Bunyan is picking up on that theology and then he's saying that Beelzebub, the adversary of our souls, the devil, Satan, recognized that from that point on, even the followers of God their whole life we're going to have to go the path through the world of vanity. So let's set up a fair. That's the origin of it. Second question, what is the merchandise of that fair? Well at this point what I want to do is let this reader that some of us are using let him read this to us. I think that he does a wonderful job with this. So I've got it on my cell phone again. And if the men have the mic up for us, I'll just let him, him do this for us tonight. A
1: fair wherein should be sold all sorts of vanity and that it should last all the year long. Therefore, at this fair are all such merchandise sold as houses, lands, trades, places, honors, preferments, titles, countries, kingdoms lusts, pleasures, and delights of all sorts as whores, boards, wives, husbands, children, masters, servants, lives, blood, bodies, souls, silver, gold, pearls, precious stones, and whatnot.
0: I want to pause that. In that particular paragraph, many, many of the things that Bunyan mentions are not in and of themselves sinful. Houses, lands, trades, places, even honors, husbands, children, masters, servants, even gold, pearls, precious stone. It's not that there's something intrinsically evil about those things. Some of the other things in the paragraph there are. But just keep that in mind. And here's the second paragraph.
1: There is at all times to be seen jugglings, cheats, games, plays, fools, apes, knaves, and rogues, and that of all sorts. Here are to be seen too, and that for nothing, thefts, murders, adulteries, false swearers, and that of a blood red color.
0: Okay, a little different, little different category of things there.
1: and as in other fairs of less moment there are several rows and streets under their proper names where such and such wares are vended so here likewise you have the proper places rows streets namely countries and kingdoms where the wares of this fair are soonest to be found here there is the britain row the french row the Italian row, the Spanish row, the German row, where several sorts of vanities are to be sold. But, as in other fairs, some one commodity is as the chief of all the fair. So the wear of Rome and her merchandise is greatly promoted in this fair. Only our English nation, with some others, have taken a dislike thereat. Okay.
0: So, there... In those two paragraphs, you can see that what he's presenting is that the fair is universal. It isn't just simply a Las Vegas here and there. It's everywhere, in every nation, in every country, wherever language is spoken. There is Vanity Fair. And, you know, we need to ask ourselves, folks, Is that an accurate portrayal in those paragraphs? That all of those things, houses, lands, honors, husbands, wife, children, all subsumed under the heading, vanity. And Beelzebub set it up. And we have to think entirely scriptural, scripturally. The Spirit of God tells us the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. And we have a whole book in our Bible <clears throat> written to us by a man whom God enabled essentially to experiment with everything. And his conclusion is it really is all vanity in this life. And what is that book? It's the book of Ecclesiastes. Bunyan is portraying this scripturally. And hopefully as we go through the message tonight, we'll have some help with that. But there's an origin to this fair, and what Bunyan has presented is exactly what the Bible presents And the Bible itself says what Bunyan is saying when it comes to what, in the end, is vanity and offered in this fair worldwide. And Bunyan has expressed that it's an enduring fair in all ages. It continues. Now, the third thing that I want to do is take us to the point where Christian and faithful are accosted by the men of the town. And the men of the town, Bunyan says, um, really noticed that these two men were different, and there were three things in particular that singled them out, that gave to them, gave everyone the obvious recognition that these men were distinguished in these ways. What was the first way that they were distinguished? By their what? By their clothes. What was the second way they were distinguished? He says, by their speech. The way they talked. You know that. You're around Christian people. Even the way they talk about the same subjects as lost people do. There's a difference. And what's the third thing that Bunyan says really distinguished them? Yeah, by the value or lack of value that they attach to all the things that worldly people feel are very, very important. And you know, finally they said to them, Well, you know, you're not buying anything. What what do you buy? And what did one of them reply? We what? We buy the truth. Which is just scripturally vanity and what is meant by vanity in the Bible is the exact opposite of the truth. We buy the truth. So, as a consequence of that, as you know, they are abused and they are imprisoned, and then they're brought to court. Remember what the name of the judge is, Mr. What? Or Lord what? Lord hate good. And this is the jury. Mr. Blind Man. Mr. No Good. Mr. Malice and so on. Now that may seem to us to be extreme. But I think most of us if we are familiar at all with what is taking place in our society. And the various matters that today Christians are now being made answerable for and accused of. There's a lot of this out there when it comes to being evaluated or even brought before civil authority. My question is, what are the charges against Christian and faithful? And One of the charges is brought by this man named Envy. In particular, I heard him, this is faithful now, I heard him once myself affirm that Christianity and the customs of our town of vanity were diametrically opposite. You think that's true or not? I mean, Bunyan's presenting it that way, but is he overdrawing the picture? Is that an exaggeration? Look at it again. The Christianity and the customs of our town of vanity are diametrically opposite, and they actually can't be reconciled. Is that biblically true or not? Why then, folks, do we continue right through our Christian lives so often to try to reconcile them. And some Christian people are aware of the folly of that and that they're doing wrong and they struggle with it. What is really disturbing is when it actually becomes a theology that numbers of Christian people actually think that they can produce Bible for. Bunyan's viewpoint, the viewpoints of the Puritans and the Covenanters and the English Evangelicals of the Awakening period, our hymn writers, many of our, I don't know the story on all of our hymn writers, but some of our most beloved hymn writers, people like the Wesleys and Watts and Francis Ridley Havergal, these people are absolutely straight about this. You can't reconcile these two. Even the good parts that just simply are part of the whole picture and ensnared because of the work of the devil. Um, in the end, you can't place the high value on them that the world does. It's a snare. It's part of the trap. The Lord Jesus himself is going to say, if you want to come after me, you will have to hate your father and mother and brother and sister, yea, in your own life also. There's no reconciling this. So they're charged with this. Faithful is in particular. And you know then what happened to him. He is maliciously executed. Wickedly executed. Can't see it in that picture. But, but uh, Bunyan says behind him, of course, the men in the fair can't see it. What was awaiting him behind him? a chariot to take him to heaven to be with the Lord. Well, that brings me to this, number four. Christian didn't suffer that kind of death and execution. Why not? Well, not because he was a compromiser. This is just the way it is. Read the 11th chapter of Hebrews all of these victories, and then but some. And from there, that point on in Hebrews 11, it's those who suffered and those who were really abused and those who were burnt and those who died for the faith. What's the difference between the two groups? All these were people of faith. Bunyan again portrays it rightly. Rightly. He that overrules all things, having the power of their rage in his own hand, so wrought it about that Christian for that time escaped them and went on his way. It's God. It's the sovereignty of God in all of our affairs like that as Christian people. Well, none of us, of course, myself included, knew that this particular reading this week would come in right where it is tonight with reference to our series. I want to give to you the reading for next week. You had it in the worship guide, but we're going to move now from Faithful's Martyrdom to Bunyan's Awaking after the pilgrims converse with the shepherds. So we've got about another 30 pages or so on that to read, and what's portrayed there is their Escaping Doubting Castle. That's part of that story. It's a really, really wonderful part of it. I think you'll be blessed by that. Okay, I want to show you this. This is something that Kara Davis did, trying to capture, just with an image, our series. And uh, I asked her, if, like I asked the Rogers, could I go ahead and show that to everybody? So <clears throat> this is going to be our image for the series, this way. And I'll probably show this a number of times as we continue on with it. These are the three prepositional expressions as you know now in our Lord's high priestly prayer in John 17 in which he in his prayer to God the Father gives the true state of things when it comes to true believers and the world. They are given to him by the Father out of the world. And to this point the series has covered that with the exception of last week's sermon that began the second uh, consideration of the second of these prepositional phrases and now they are not of the world. Given to the Father out of the world now they're not of the world. And our portion of the series right now is an effort to understand that scripturally. And then thirdly we are sent into the world. That will be the third installment of that. Okay, I think I'm just going to leave that up there tonight. Would you look with me please then again in John 17 verses 14 and 16 where the second of those expressions is used. John 17 verse 14 our Lord says, They are not of the world, even as I am not of the world. And he repeats it in verse 16 they are not of the world, even as I am not of the world. And what we are attempting to do now in this series on the true Christian's relationship to what the Bible calls the world, we're trying to understand then in what sense our Lord is using that expression that we now are not of the world. And what we discovered last week is that the qualifier is the key to understanding it. When he says, when he qualifies this way, even as I am not of the world. Whatever he means by that is what he means by we are not of the world now. And what we came to understand last week is that the primary thing that is being reflected there is the fact that we now are partakers of a different nature. That it isn't just that we no longer do certain things that were worldly, just like Jesus didn't do them, or that we don't go certain places that were exceedingly sinful in this world, just like Jesus did not frequent those places. No, what he's talking about is something that is much more the essence of himself, and that has become our essence, as it were. Not just character, But being, actual being, and we were told in one of our initial texts for this series that we have escaped the corruption that is in the world by lust. How have we escaped that? By being made partakers of the divine nature. 2 Peter one 1.4 listen to it again partakers of the divine nature which of course does not mean that we are deified but it does mean that we now have a different life not just lifestyle lifestyle is the outgrowth or it's the fruit of of a certain kind of nature or life. We have been made partakers of God's very life. Now folks, we, last week, in trying to understand this, gave our attention to this fact first of all. And that is that that life or that nature is implanted in us as a result of being born again. Or other scripture language for it is born of God or born of the Spirit or the theological word for it is regeneration. Regeneration is not just a change of position on paper. Regeneration is literally the giving of life. It is something coming into being. We were born. And I've used the word implanted because first John three nine says, and I called your attention last week to the striking nature of this, the breathtaking wording of it. But it says that God's sperma abides in us. It's the word for seed. God's seed is in us. It is implanted by the Spirit of God. And it gives to us new birth and new life. And we captured that in the title of Henry Scugel's classic The Life of God and the Soul of a Man. What is a Christian? Scugel wrote... A Christian is a man with the life of God in his soul. And that's right. That's entirely scriptural, and it's the result of the new birth. Now, folks, last week, in connection with that, I called your attention to a little cluster of Bible passages that I did not expand on in that message. But I call their attention to this. That there are a number of New Testament passages that link this with Christ. Not just our believing into Christ, but actually link our having life with our somehow being attached to to Him. And that is what we want to give our attention to tonight. The message is entitled, Not of the World, in Union with Christ. message last week could have been entitled Not of the World by Virtue of the New Birth. But what we discover, folks, is that there is no such thing as a new birth apart from Union with Jesus Christ. So I want tonight to bring those scriptures back before us and then what I want to do is give attention to understanding them and use the biblical illustrations of them. This matter of our being made partakers of the divine nature is the primary sense in which we are no longer of the world It happens by virtue of the what? New birth. And it happens in union with Jesus Christ. Now listen to just three expressions from three different Bible texts. Ephesians chapter 2 verse 5. You were made alive together with Christ. Ephesians chapter 2 verse 10, you as a believer, as a Christian, were created in Christ Jesus. 2 Corinthians chapter 5 verse 17, if any man be in Christ, you're created in Christ Jesus, and if you're in Christ, you are a new creation. Now, it would be very easy to assume that those passages are just speaking to us figuratively. Or, as it's sometimes put, that they're just speaking to us in terms of our position, the way God regards us positionally. I want to ask you now to turn with me to a fourth text. It's in the book of Galatians, the second chapter. And that we're going to use this tonight as a primary help in understanding this matter of union with the Lord Jesus Christ. Galatians chapter 2. You know, of course, that the apostle in this book is having to correct the misnotion that salvation, or justification in particular, is at least in part dependent upon continuing to observe certain aspects of the Old Testament law. Now folks, Paul doesn't just correct that, but he is led by the Holy Spirit to actually make some statements in this book, and there are several of them, some of them we will look at later in this series, in which he is presenting the astounding nature the miraculous nature of what actually is required to be justified. And once you understand it, it's like, well, how could I ever think that observing anything in the law had anything to do do with it if that's what was required? And the text we're going to look at right now is one of those texts. It's the 20th verse of chapter 2. And Paul says this I have been crucified with Christ. And it is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. Christ lives in me. Now, that doesn't mean I no longer live. Because look at the next phrase. And the life which I now live in the flesh. I live by faith in the Son of God. Who loved me and gave himself up for me. Now the primary reason that I've chosen this text tonight. To really help us with this matter. Is of understanding how our union with Christ or our attachment to Christ is the thing that is absolutely necessary even for regeneration. is because in this text we have the two aspects in which the Bible speaks of our being united to Him. They're both in this verse. The first of those aspects is reflected when Paul says in verse 20, I have been crucified with Christ. The Apostle Paul was not crucified. What he is speaking of here is what the Bible refers to as a union with Christ In the same sense that the Bible can say, we were united to Adam. And what it's talking about is what theologians refer to as union in a federal sense. Federal union. It's not a Bible word, but it is an English word and concept that does capture reflects what we're taught in Scripture about one of the aspects in which we are united to the Lord Jesus Christ. What is federal union? Federal union is where you have a number of entities, individual entities, and they end up bound together in such a way that some central head or primary figure acts and his act is one for which they all then become responsible or in which they all share. It is an ar- In this life it's an arrangement that te- people tend to enter into voluntarily. So for instance to use an illustration of this think of the preamble to our Constitution. The preamble begins this way. We the people of the United States in order to form a more perfect union. There are all kinds of us and we have these representatives now in the Continental Congress in the various states and we now are drafting a constitution in order to form a more perfect union. In other words, all of us, though we're separate, we have a lot of distinctive ideas from one another, we don't all see everything the same way, but we realize we need a union, and so we're going to draft this document, and we're all going to subordinate ourselves to it. And carrying out its stipulations and the things that we all agree to, whatever that involves, whether whether that involves our common defense, whether it involves our justice system, whether it involves our general welfare, or the blessings of liberty, we're, you know, we're all, whatever that entails, we're all in this together. That's what federal union is. Now, folks, the key passage in the Bible about this arrangement is in the book of Romans. We're not going to turn there, but it's the fifth chapter. And beginning in the 12th verse, the Spirit of God is explaining to us how it can be that what Jesus Christ did can affect all of us. Because the language all through the first 11 verses is that all of this wonderful justification and peace with god and all these other blessings are for us in christ or with christ. So you look at that language and say how can it be that somehow we're united to him so that what he did and what he gives so you know that one man affects all of us. Verse 12. Spirit of god says, this is no new thing This has been done before. This is just the way it was with you in Adam. What that one man did affected all of you. And in verses 12 through 19 in that fifth chapter, the Spirit of God goes back and forth paralleling that. It's a hard section to understand. And if you feel like it's difficult, Peter even said, Paul writes some difficult things. And he said that those who are unlearned actually twist those things. So you have to proceed very carefully through that section. Or you could could err and go wrong very easily. But I'm going to read to you the two verses toward the end where this parallel is most clear. Just listen to it as through the one transgression, that was Adam's, there resulted condemnation to all men. Would you agree with that? Okay. Even so, even so, through one act of righteousness on the part of the last Adam, Christ, through one act of righteousness, there resulted justification of life to all men. Would you agree with that? like the one so the other one man acted we were all affected the second man acted and we can all be affected justification of life listen to it again next verse for as through the one man's disobedience the many were made sinners even so through the obedience of the one the many will be made righteous this is federal union that the scripture is speaking of here now Now that we've got that concept in mind. What do you do with this statement? I've been crucified with Christ. No, you weren't, Paul. Not literally. Not experientially. Truly, clearly, he's got to be speaking positionally. Or federally. He's got to be speaking of his having become united with Christ in his death in the way God regarded Paul. God regarded Paul as having been crucified when Christ was crucified. Listen to this, 2 Corinthians 5 verse 14. One has died for all. Yeah, but have you ever looked at the second part of the verse? Therefore all died. One has died for all. Therefore all died. It's what Paul is saying in Galatians 2:20. I've been crucified with Christ. Listen to what he says in Colossians chapter 2 verse 20. He says to those believers, you died with Christ. Now folks, the Bible goes right on and uses that language of our position with Christ when it speaks, for instance, of our having been buried with him. And also when it speaks of our having been raised up with him. You were buried with him through baptism, Colossians 2.12. In which you also were raised up with him, Colossians 2.12. God raised us up with him, Ephesians 2.6. Now get this one. And seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ jesus i 'm looking at you you 're seated here tonight. The Bible says you 're seated up there, which is it? Are you seated here or seated there? And the answer is, oh, you 're not following you 're seated here. Are you seated here or are you seated there? And the answer is, yes experientially, in actuality, literally, you're seated right here in this property tonight. Positionally, because you are united with Jesus Christ in this federal way, you are, as God regards it, you are seated with Christ Jesus in heavenly places. Now, folks, that is the legal sense in which we're joined to Christ. Federal union is a matter of of something that the law of God, the righteousness of God approves, it supports it. It's a legal union. A positional union. Okay. But now you're looking at Galatians 2.20, look at the next part of the verse. I've been crucified with Christ positionally but now this, it's no longer I who live but Christ lives in me. Now, folks, that is not talking about something that is merely positional. And we know that because of other scriptures as well. You might want to write down two passages that I give to you in the margin right next to that. I don't think you probably have them in your cross-referencing. I don't have them when I cross-referencing in my Bible. But one of them is Colossians 1.27. This is a remarkable thing. Paul says there that what he's going to say here is a mystery which as you know is something that can only not be known by God's revelation of it. He says that it is God's will now that we know this mystery which is Christ in you the hope of glory, your confident expectation that you will be glorified. Why? Christ is already in me. And our Lord himself in that 17th chapter of John and the 23rd verse, that's another verse you may want to write next to this verse in the margin of your Bible. In our Lord's prayer this is what he said, I in them And you in me, that they may be perfected in unity. I want to ask you a question tonight. Listen to it again. I in them, and you, God the Father, in me. Was God the Father literally in Jesus Christ? Or was that just something that in God's mind he regarded it that way? Yes or no? Do the members of the Godhead mutually indwell one another? Yes. Now, folks, just like that, you in me, he says, I in them, so we may be perfected in unity. It's very, very important to understand this. I found a statement in Wayne Grudem's Systematic Theology. In which he just makes a statement it's important to maintain on the basis of these verses that there is a real personal dwelling of Christ in us. And what he does clarify in a footnote I think is very important that this is talking about Christ's divine nature. It's not talking about his human body. His human body is not omnipresent. But the Everlasting Son of God in His deity is present everywhere and continue to be present everywhere, even during the incarnation. You say, I don't understand that. Nobody does. <laughs> it's a miracle, it's beyond us, all right? We can't, the incarnation is the greatest miracle of all. No one can even possibly begin to understand that, and God has not revealed it. So this is very, very critical. When you think about, am I really that different? These people that I work with, you'll see them tomorrow, you'll spend hours and hours and hours in their company. And Jesus said, "You're not of, you're not of the world." And what we've discovered is the world isn't just things that are done or places that <clears throat> certain things occur. The world is that whole mass of fallen humanity webbed together, entangled together because of the loss of their minds, the indulgence in their own desires, and the whole thing is energized by Satan, by Beelzebub, as Bunyan presents this, and the Lord says, when you go to the office tomorrow, you're not of that, like I'm not of it. Lord, what do you mean by that? You're not of that nature. It isn't just that you go to lunch at the same places. When I used to work on a carpentry crew, working through college at lunchtime, all the guys would get up and they'd go to a bar. And they invited me. I didn't go. But that wasn't the primary sense in which I was not of the world or of them. I was of a totally different nature. By virtue of what? The new birth. But folks, there is no new birth apart from union with Jesus Christ. The life is in Him. It's not something separate. It isn't given to me like a little package. Now I've got it, and then the Holy Spirit now is going to attach me to Him. No, it's when I'm attached to Him, now I have the life that's in Him. That's the way the Bible presents this. It's critical I think one of the best definitions of regeneration that I've ever come across is from the theologian now deceased, J.I. Packer. Listen to this, that regeneration is that vitalizing union with the risen Christ. A, what does it mean, a vitalizing? It means a life-giving, a life-giving union with the risen Christ through the sovereign work of the Spirit. I'll say that again. Regeneration is the vitalizing union with the risen Christ. A literal union. Not just the positional that some of those verses are talking about, but where we actually now, where Christ is in us, and we are in him, and it is his life that we have. Vitalizing union with the risen Christ through the sovereign work of the Spirit, so that I'm a partaker of the divine nature. In fact, I discovered some reading... In the last few weeks, by Thomas Goodwin, you remember that Goodwin is the Puritan who did the work, The Return of Prayers, that we gave some attention to on Wednesday night several years ago. Thomas Goodwin, John Owen, they both postulated, actually, not that it would happen chronologically this way, but that theologically this has to be the sequence that actually Christ embraces us into union with himself, then we're regenerated that there is no life apart from him. Now, folks, let's let's move to two Bible metaphors that will really help with this. The Lord Jesus Christ said in John 15, "I'm the vine." And you're the what? You're the branches. That is organic union. How how do I have life as a branch? When we think about this, when we conceive about this, this is important. Do we conceive of ourselves as living branches who then get Attached to Jesus Christ. We we were born again disattached from Christ. Now we're born again and we have life and now we're attached to Christ by the Holy Spirit. You can see how critical it is to have right conception about this that the Bible's presentation of the facts are there is no life outside of Christ for anyone. You have to be in Christ to be alive. You are no living branch if you are not attached to the vine. It isn't that the Spirit of God makes living branches and then he grafts them into Jesus Christ. It's that people are put into Christ and Christ's life then is their life. And that's what the Lord Jesus teaches in that passage that then attached from, disattached from, you can do nothing. The other great metaphor that you have about this is the head and the body. And you know, without the head, there's no life in our members. I mean, this is a gruesome illustration, but, you know, behead me. The life is gone from every one of my members. It isn't that the Holy Spirit made me a finger and then he put me on the body. It's that somehow, in the mystery of the miracle, my being attached to Christ and given the life of regeneration, being made a partaker of the divine nature, they're all one. They're one. And in just a moment, I'll try to illustrate how significant that is for us in our series. Now, folks, that brings me to this as another major point tonight. First major point is that this matter of being a partaker of the divine nature occurs as we are united with Christ. And we are united with Him scripturally in two ways. Federally and organically. Vitally. In a literal, life-giving, and I have to use this language, it's right, life-sharing way. He in us, we in Him. The Lord Jesus Christ literally living within us as the Spirit of God indwells us. Now secondly, this new life, when this happens to a man or a woman, that new life, here's maybe a way to think of it makes a new use of all my members. My members are the same. I didn't get new hands, new eyes, new ears, a new heart. But this new life, Christ's life in us, and the Holy Spirit, of course, in us, but the life itself makes a new use of all of my members. And folks, you can think of it this way. There's just an entirely new disposition in this new life. The life itself has a godly disposition to it. The new life that you have in Christ will never agree with certain things in this world. It just won't. It will always disapprove of them, just like the Spirit of God does. Because this is the life of Christ. It's eternal life. We have a difficulty really understanding all of this just like we do our bodies. Can I use this illustration? Our bodies are made up of various systems like the nervous system and the circulatory system and the respiratory system, digestive system. And those various systems make use of a lot of the same components. When we read the Bible's language about the components of the inner man, the heart and the conscience, the mind, the will, the affection, the kidneys, the soul, the spirit, the Bible doesn't take those in isolation from one another and define them. They're, they're in systems in us. And that's what makes it hard for us then to completely comprehend here, to isolate certain things and say, now I've really got a handle on that. So when I say the life that is in us disagrees with the world, I'm not by that dismissing at all the indwelling of the Holy Spirit or the indwelling of Christ, minimizing any of that. I'm just saying that all of that is working together in me as a new creation in Christ Jesus. It isn't just that the Spirit of God indwells me and He disapproves of certain things, It's that the new nature that I have in Christ, that nature disapproves of certain things. It'll never be satisfied. For instance, it's that nature that hungers for the Word of God. It isn't the Holy Spirit hungering for the Word of God in me. It's my new life hungering for the Word of God in me. And that same new nature just simply can't feed on certain things. And there's a great change then that is made... In the way that disposition in that life views everything. For instance, here's an illustration. Take a man who, before he came to Christ, loved to party. To drink, to laugh, stay up late into the night, dancing to sensual music, gambling a little bit, boasting a little bit, flippant, confident, admiring, and being admired. The life of the party. That's the way that fella. Looked forward to what the world calls the weekend. And when he was watching sports on TV and on came the beer commercials, he saw exactly what the brewery was projecting, projecting innocence and happiness and conviviality and enjoyment and companionship, smiles all around, and everything in him answered to that. Yeah, that's the good life. Wow. That's the way he viewed that with his eyes. But if that man is born of the Spirit and united with the living Christ so that Christ now lives in him and he in Christ, those same physical eyes see those commercials completely differently. It isn't just the Holy Spirit sees them. The man sees them differently. And it isn't just that he sees them differently because he went to a series at church on what worldliness is. And they had 10 things that Christians don't do. They don't drink, they don't smoke, they don't chew, they don't run with girls who do. And he, you know, he got all that in his head. And so now he sees the commercials differently. It's from the get go. There are a lot of things that just right away, he just has a totally different view of. So now with those same physical eyes, when he sees those commercials, what he sees is the deception of the whole thing. The emptiness. What a fool I was. What a danger I was in. It all looks now like muck and mire. That, folks, is the result of new life. That new life makes use of the same members of this body in new ways. And it is one of the surefire ways you know you now are really a child of God. Because you are not of that world anymore, just like Jesus was not of that world at all. I brought a few things that I want to show you tonight. I had to bring them in my briefcase, so I'm going to set this up here. This is, a, this is a candlestick that is made out of olive wood and that we purchased in Bethlehem. It's beautifully carved and beautifully lacquered. I have it in my study. We have a number of those in the house, really, and have a little candle in it. This is a gavel that Frederick Ragnar made for me when I became the senior pastor of this church. He made it laminated out of, uh, it looks to me like it's maple and walnut. Beautifully carved. And his anticipation was that when there were business meetings, that I would do the gavel, which I never have. He made one for Pastor Boyd too. Pastor Boyd did use it a few times, and he dented the old pulpit, so (laughs) I never did that. Okay. This... is a little enclosure with three carved wooden balls in it and all these links in the same chain that's all out of one piece of wood. And that was done by Malcolm Evans in our church. A lot of skill involved in that. And this is a hard piece of English oak that is hundreds of years old. This came from the rafters of a historic building in the little town, Chipping, Sodbury, just four miles from where William Tyndale was the tutor of the two sons of John Walsh at Little Sodbury. This is from that same period of time. It has these hand-forged nails in it. When Linda and I were there several years ago, they were uh, they 'd had the roof off of this house, and they were having to repair a lot of things, and they had some of these timbers down and I called up and asked the fellow if he 'd cut me the end of one of them off, and he did, and so that 's my little bit of w- William Tyndale in my house, OK. But that was there for hundreds of years. got one more thing to show you: this is a pen, a fountain pen, that someone made for me, and it is wood. Well, folks, what all of these things have in common is that they are wood. They once, all of them, were living. They were all attached to plant life. Now they're disattached, some of them for centuries. Here's what I want to point out. None of these are instruments of evil. None of them. Beautiful and refined, clever, skillful, law abiding, law <laughs> keeping, sturdy, dependable, enduring but they're all lifeless. You can take that, I can't, but you can take that and pen a Pilgrim's Progress that people read for centuries. Or you can pen a great novel or factual article or beautiful music, compose something that a symphony would play with a thing like that. Now folks, the Bible's explanation of everything is this: all those people out there that that are like that, they're refined, they're beautiful. Um, they are skillful and clever. They are upstanding in the community and stand for law and order. They are dependable and enduring. Yeah, but they're all dead. All those good things, but they are dead. What would it take for them to have life? A miracle. For them to ever be what they once were, as God intended it in the beginning, somehow they would have to be reattached to that plant, to that tree. You know, it isn't that they would come alive like Moses' staff became a serpent. It won't come alive. God's way would be to attach them again to the living plant, the living tree. And that's what God did with you. And once you understand that, then you you see all of this with different eyes. It isn't that you want to be ugly or unkempt or not comb your hair or rake the leaves out of your yard, but you you look at the whole effort to be beautiful differently. You, you see it differently. You can't imagine yourself pursuing this to look more and more of like that or to be exceptionally talented in something that's the world's amusement and Not a sinful thing, but just, you know, it's it's what they give all their time and attention to become skillfully doing, but it's just, that's all it is. You admire it, but that's not the life I want to have or the time and attention I want to give. Even this, it's like Fuller said, it's just the rules that everybody who has mutinied on the bounty It's the rules that they have to have to keep order on the ship so they don't kill each other. Even that. Even that. Write beautiful music that people will play a hundred years from now in symphony orchestras. you You just see it all a lot differently. Your values are different. Bunyan is right. Your dress, your speech, your values are different because you are no longer of the world even as Jesus is not of the world. And it's because you've been made a partaker of the divine nature. And it's His, it's Christ. You're attached to Christ. And it isn't just on paper. It isn't just in the mind of God positionally. It is a living, vital, organic, real union. And here's what's wonderful. It can't ever, ever, you can't ever be detached from him. You are kept by God's power in him. Gracious Heavenly Father, thank you for our time together tonight. And we pray that by your grace, that these things would be used by your Spirit and worked into our hearts where our eyes really do see everything in a new way and see these bodies of ours and all the use we make of them in a completely different way. And loving Lord, we know that the difference that it will make in how we evaluate the things of this life the people of this life, the accomplishments of lost people in this life. Lord, we truly do want to have the mind of Christ and come to understand the sense in which, in the end, it's all vanity. And it's a fair. And we're just passing through. Lord, grant to us, we pray, that we may more and more enjoy, magnify, find our souls completely satisfied with the life of a pilgrim, a pilgrim life. And gracious Lord, we pray that the profiting of this in our church, in our lives and families will become more and more apparent. We ask it in Christ Jesus' precious name. Amen. 438 in our hymn book. We're only going to sing the first stanza because it's the first stanza that really captures the truth we've looked at tonight. I'd like for us to sing that first stanza. Then we're going to go right across the page. I have mentioned before that this number across the page, now I belong to Jesus, is the number that for years and years has involuntarily gone through my mind and does more than any other hymn that I've ever sung. Jesus, my Lord, will love me forever. From him no power of evil can sever. He gave his life to ransom my soul. Now I belong to him. Let's stand together and sing the first stanza of 438. 438. which aspect of our union with Christ? The federal or the legal position with Jesus Christ. What about the next line? Living with Jesus a new life, divine. That's the other. That is the literal, vital union with Christ. The the new life divine is not my acting in divine ways. It is the life of God in my soul living a certain way. That's what's being reflected there. Okay, can we sing that again without the instruments? And let's slow the tempo down just a little bit. Let's sing the whole first stanza and chorus. First two stanzas and you'll see how they connect. Let's sing those. <laughs> And the life we live this week, let's live by faith in the Son of God who loved us and gave himself for us. Good night. We're dismissed.